0: This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will be a question session reviewing a grab bag of basic science topics including muscle biology and physiology, cartilage, peripheral nerve injury and repair, antibiotic drugs, molecular biology basics, clinical trials, levels of evidence, occupational health, statistics definitions, outcome measure tools, and hip biomechanics. The questions that will be reviewed appeared on the Basic Science No. 11 Specialty Exam on the OrthoBullets Virtual Curriculum. We will include a link in the show notes to take the exam if you have not done so already. The questions included in this episode will be reviewed by Dr. Patrick O'Donnell, who is an orthopedic oncologist at the University of Kentucky.
1: Legion football players hit in the thigh, 29, by uh, opposing player's helmet. Radiographs are unremarkable and the player is diagnosed with a muscle contusion. Which of the following cells appears first in the thigh following the injury? So muscle injury, let's look at it. Neutrophils are actually the first listed cell. So this is a little bit of test taking. Let's go back and look at this. Question is asking for the first listed cell to appear. They're not the first cell that appears. The first cell that appears is a red blood cell with your hemorrhage. So the neutrophils are the first listed cell to appear following acute muscle injury. Inflammation causes mononuclear cell chemotaxis and a massive influx of neutrophils to the injury site, releasing further pro-inflammatory cytokines. Following this initial phase, the macrophages arrive to phagocytize the debris. The neutrophil presence and free radical generation is thought to be associated with the scarring and the muscle damage that your sports medicine doctors are seeing in their clinics. Back to the question. 29, collegiate football player hit in the thigh by an opposing player's helmet. Radiographs are unremarkable, and the player is diagnosed with a muscle contusion. Which of the following cells appear first in the thigh following injury? 92% of you guys got this correct. That's awesome. If we look at the incorrect answers, one, three, and four, Anytime you see blast, this is a little nugget just to to tuck away in your memory bank. Blast means some type of a precursor cell. So oftentimes blasts aren't going to be, they're going to be the cells that are going to be in your marrow. They're going to be your mesenchymal stem cells that are trickling through your fat or your muscle or in your bloodstream. These are not going to be the first to arrive. Looking at your eosinophils, they're immune cells. They're typically involved in allergy and asthma. Not going to be involved in this general inflammation of a muscle injury. Next topic, cartilage. SOX9 is a key transcription factor involved in the differentiation of which of the following cell lineages. Cartilage, it's formed from these prechondrogenic mesenchymal stem cells. It requires activation and migration of appropriate precursor cells to the correct location. SOX9 is considered a master switch for the differentiation of cells of the chondrogenic lineage. SOX9 binds to a critical consensus sequence in the collagen-2 promoter to activate its transcription. Retinoic acid has been implicated in the process of cartilage formation. Going back to the question, 19, SOX9 is a key transcription factor involved in the differentiation of which of the following cell lineages? Correct answer, three, chondrocytes. 70% 70% of you guys got that correct. That's great. So let's go through these incorrect answers. One, two, and four. Well, SOX9 isn't actually involved with osteoclast or osteoblasts. Number five, SOX9 is not a transcription factor to transmembrane tyrosine kinase receptor. Not the case. SOX9 is not a transmembrane tyrosine kinase receptor. It is a transcription factor. Next topic, peripheral nerves. 22, vitamin B deficiency is known to cause which of the following? Vitamin B, it's important for hematopoiesis and CNS maintenance. Deficiencies are common, are a common cause of peripheral sensory neuropathy. B12 levels should be evaluated in patients presenting with peripheral sensory neuropathy. Some signs of B12 deficiency, you get a decrease in your deep tendon reflexes. You get your pathologic reflexes like your Babinski's. You can have fatigue and depression. Back to the question, vitamin B deficiency, known cause of which of the following? Well, the correct answer here is two. Peripheral sensory neuropathy. Not that you can't whistle, that's FSH muscular dystrophy, right? Number three, B12 deficiency causes a decrease in your, de- in your deep tendon reflexes. Mania, B12 deficiency actually causes fatigue and depression, not mania. Hydrophobia, that's what you see with rabies. The next topic is the antibiotic drugs. Question 48, Mech A is a bacterial gene which encodes for penicillin binding protein that alters the efficacy of beta-lactam antibiotics. Which of the following species of bacteria are known to produce mecA? A? This is a must-know in your antibiotics classification. So MRSA is the most common carrier of the mecA A gene. mecA A can also be found in Streptococcus pneumoniae species. What mecA A does is it alters the bacterial susceptibility towards penicillin by forming this penicillin-binding protein. The penicillin-binding protein is a membrane-associated protein which shows low affinity to penicillin-like antibiotics. A small little nugget of information that might help is that this mecA is expressed on a plasmid. So a plasmid is DNA that's in a short sequence, usually some type of a a ring or or the like, different from the bacterial genome that can be transferred from one bacteria to another. Back to the question, mecA is a bacterial gene which encodes for penicillin binding protein that alters the efficacy of beta-lactam antibiotics. Which of the following species of bacteria are known to produce MEC A? Correct answer is four, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So it looks like 97% of you got this correct. That's awesome. If we look at the incorrect answers, C. diff and C. tetany, they don't harbor MEC A. VRE shows resistance by the VAN genes, which also alter the vancomycin binding site, the D-aladialamine. And only MRSE harbors Mech E, that's MRSA, excuse me, MRSA harbors MEC A not strep epi. Next topic, molecular biology basics. What is the post-amplification product of reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction? This question has generated a lot of questions by takers on orthovolids. So let's go through it and make sure everybody understands. So PCR, polymerase chain reaction, it's a tool. It's a molecular biological tool that's only used to create copies of DNA. So you see PCR, you think DNA. What it does is it uses short primers of DNA to help amplify uh, some segment of of DNA. The way that it does this is via this temperature mediated enzyme, DNA polymerase. So reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR, remember, you see the PCR, you think DNA. The difference here is that reverse transcriptase takes RNA back to DNA for the DNA to be amplified. So it's a variant of PCR. It generates many copies of DNA from fragments of RNA. Remember, PCR, DNA. So what RT-PCR does is takes RNA back to DNA and then amplifies it. So looking at the question, what is the post-amplification product of reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction? The correct answer is two, it's DNA. Only 57% of you got this correct. One way to think about this is remember your central dogma of molecular biology. DNA goes to RNA via the process of transcription. RNA goes to protein via the process of translation. So remember, script, the C, C comes before L in the alphabet. So transcription comes before translation. Reverse transcriptase takes the RNA back to DNA. So let's look at the incorrect answers. RNA, I know this is a difficult one. RT-PCR. CPCR, think DNA. So, RNA, we don't have actually a good way to amplify DNA. The only thing we can do is take RNA back to DNA, then amplify it. Three, protein, the product of RNA translation, and it's not affected by PCR. Mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, it generates the ATP. Immunoglobulins, they're antibodies made by B cells, they're not involved in RTPCR. Next topic clinical trials. Which of the following study designs represents a level three evidence study? Your pyramid of level of evidence is something you have to know. Your level one studies, randomized control trials. Your level two, perspective control trials. Level three include retrospective cohorts and case control studies. Level four, case series. Level five, case report, expert opinion, personal observation. I put down here level eight. That's my opinion. I don't matter. 43, which of the following study designs represents a level three evidence study? Correct answer is two, a retrospective case control study. Only 80% of you got this correct. So let's look at answer three, the the second most chosen one. Case three, a case series. So that's a level four study. You have to have a control group for it to be a level three. Again, level of evidence, let's hit it home. Using level of evidence in research studies, which of the following represents a level two study? Again, same slide. Randomized control trial, level one. Prospective cohort, two. Retrospective cohort study or a case control, level three. Case series, four. Case report, expert opinion, five. Using level of evidence in research studies, which of the following represents a level two study? Correct answer, two. Prospective cohort study. 88% got that correct. That's excellent. Occupational health. When using C-arm fluoroscopy, patient radiation exposure will be increased with which of the following? Radiation exposure is increased if a larger body part is imaged, the extremity is positioned closer to the x-ray source, large C-arm gives more radiation than a mini-C-arm. So factors you can use to decrease radiation exposure, minimize the time, maximize the distance, use a columnator. The columnator, what it does is it focuses the x-ray beam. So the columnator f- functions like a comb and it, it hones down that beam so that less radiation, less scatter gets to the patient. You can use the inverted position relative to the patient like this seen up here. This is what we always did during residency. It's something that I never understood. But when you're doing those supracondylar fractures in kids, you flip the machine over use this as your base plate to do your reduction. At the same time, you're getting good images and you're decreasing your radiation exposure for the child. Finally, use your protective shielding. When using C-arm fluoroscopy, patient radiation exposure will be increased with which of the following? Correct answer is two, a larger body part is imaged compared to a smaller body part. So only 77% got that correct. Let's look at answer one. Closer to the II, the image intensifier decreases the exposure. Number three, the beam culminator decreases scatter and exposure. Number four, the mini C-arm decreases radiation exposure. Number five, decreased imaging duration decreases exposure. Statistics definitions. What term in statistics defines accepting the null hypothesis when it is in fact not true? You must know. This is something that's, that's the new wave of orthopedics because everybody's recognizing the amount of beta errors that are occurring in orthopedics. So a type one error, the null hypothesis is rejected even though it is in fact correct. One example of this would be to say, well, does chiropractic manipulation affect asthma? Our null hypothesis would be, nope, doesn't affect asthma. But what we can see is some of our colleagues in chiropractic medicine do actually believe that chiropractic manipulation affects asthma. So your null hypothesis re- is rejected, even though it is, in fact, re- uh, correct. Type 2 error, remember the 2, the null hypothesis is accepted. There are two Cs and accepted, even though it is, in fact, not correct. So, one example, data suggests aspirin is not effective in preventing death from acute myocardial infarction. Type 2 errors are due to inappropriate study power, aka the false negative rate or beta error that's being made. The study power is the chance of detecting a true positive if one actually uh, exists, and it's 1 minus the beta. So, type 2 error is common in orthopedics. You can avoid it with appropriate pre study power calculations and sample size calculations. Question 28, what is the term in statistics that defines accepting the null hypothesis when it is in fact not true? Well your correct answer is type two error. 71% of you got that correct. So let's look at this. Type one error, this is where you reject the null hypothesis. Not accept it, you're rejecting the null hypothesis. Number three, bias, a selection bias as an example where certain people are more likely to participate in research than others which skews the data. Four and five, predictive values. How likely does a positive or negative result on a diagnostic test occur in somebody with or without that disease? Question 37, the statistical power of a study is best defined by your study power. You have to know the study power. Study power is an estimate of the probability of finding an association in a research study when one actually exists. The power is defined as one minus beta, or the type two error. Appropriate powered studies are those with about 80% of power, i.e. there's less than a 20% chance of a type 2 error. This also is another way of saying there's an 80% chance of detecting an association and a 20% chance of randomly missing it. So statistical power of a study is best defined by answer 1, 1 minus the probability of a type 2 beta error. 79% of you got that correct. Let's look at answer 4. 1 minus the probability of a type 1 error. This is the the key differentiator on this question, is knowing the alpha versus the beta and which one is associated with power. Outcome measure tools. 45-year-old male trauma patient presents with multiple extremity injuries, including a foot injury shown in figure A. The foot foot fracture is treated surgically and heals without initial complications. At a minimum of 12 months, this patient will be expected to have which of the following scores compared to matched polytrauma patient without a foot injury. So you're looking at this, you have an x-ray. This isn't, this isn't actually an x-ray question. This is a pull it from your brain question about what are the outcome measure tools in foot patients. So let's look at them. Outcome measure tools allow for quantified measurement of patient outcome. The ideal outcome measurement tool is both validated and reliable. So this little cartoon helps to understand this. So in, in this situation, in this bullseye, the person doing the shooting is reliable. They're always in the same spot, but they're not valid. They're not next to the true norm. Here, this is an example of low validity and low reliability. Not only are they scattered away from the true norm, they're not in the same area. Again, not reliable, not valid. Finally, a test that you want is both validated and reliable. You see the, the uh, the precision is, is high because the reliability is all, all very clustered next to each other, and it's validated because it's next to the known norm. So to answer this question, you have to know that foot injury independently predicts poor outcome in a polytraumatized patient. You've all seen this. Your patients with a femur fracture, a pelvic injury, a head injury, if they get a list Frank, you know that they're not going to do very well. The SF36, the WOMAC, the Modified Box Children's Hospital Grading System, and the AAOS, limb, foot, and ankle questionnaire all validate this. So more, uh, the, the big picture is that more attention needs to be paid to these patients and what can we do to optimize their outcome? Back to the question, 45-year-old male, multiple, multiple injured, foot injury is shown at a minimum of 12 months. This patient will be expected to have which of the following scores compared to match polytraumatized polytraum- patient without a foot injury? Well, the correct answer is one. Lower mean SF36 score. 84% of you guys got this correct. That's awesome. Hip biomechanics, our last topic. Question 31. Figure A represents a free body diagram of the hip of a patient standing on the right leg. The forces and distances are labeled on the diagram and resulting hip joint reactive force, J, of 1800 newtons. What is the resultant value for the hip joint reactive force, J, when the acetabular component is medialized, giving the new distances shown in figure B. So the differences between here are the A and the B, so 50 and 100 versus 50 and 50. So free body diagrams show the locations and directions of all forces and moments acting on a body. The body and the left leg weight of about five, six times total body weight in a right leg stance, uh, single leg stance. The joint reactive force decreases as the acetabular component is moved medial. This is because of decreased abductor tension. What you're looking to strive for is mechanical equilibrium, where the sum of all forces at the moment equals zero. So the two equations that you need to remember are the one for abductor tension and the one for joint reactive force. we'll go through these on the next slide. The correct answer here is 2, 1200. So let's see how we get here. If we look at the bottom diagram here, the first step that you need to do is determine the new abduction tension with a B of 50. So again, here's that first equation, AT times A minus minus fixed body weight times B has to equal zero. All the forces have to sum out to zero. So if you look at this, AT times in, and simplify it, AT times 50 has to equal 3,000. So your new abductor tension is 600 newtons. What you do is you then plug that into your second equation to determine the new joint reactive force. So J equals abductor tension times 5 6 body weight, or J equals 600 newtons plus 600 newtons or 1200 newtons. That's how we get to answer two. Let's sum up this portion of it. The top ten, uh, as I see it. Number one, you have to know your statistics definitions. There's going to be a question on your exam, at least one, of alpha, beta, power uh, questions. Number two, immunology. I really like immunology. Not everybody does, but you're going to see it. You're going to see a psoriatic patient, a rheumatoid patient, a general immunological question. The immune response, fracture healing, it's all related to immunology. Number three, antibiotic drugs. In addition to knowing their mechanisms of actions, you have to tuck away those little facts like the MEC a gene, things that are going to confer uh, resistance to some of our bacterial strains. Related to that is the MRSA, vancomycin, and MEC a pathways. Number five, one of my most favorite is the rank-rank ligand OPG pathway. Remember, rank ligand, secreted by osteoblasts, acts on osteoclast precursors to stimulate them. It tickles them in just the right way that it turns, off, turns them on. OPG is also secreted by osteoblasts, and it decreases the function of the osteoclast. Number six, bone homeostasis. So your cathepsins, your calcitonins, remember that calcitonin acting on the calcitonin receptor to decrease resorption by, by signaling through the cell signal cascade and also decrease the gene product of the calcitonin receptor. An easy one to remember is your central dogma of molecular biology, your PCR and your molecular biology basics. Knowing that you go from DNA, transcription to RNA, translation to protein, Remember, the C in transcription occurs in the alphabet before the L in translation. That's why transcription occurs before translation. And the reverse transcriptase takes the RNA back to DNA. And if you're going to see anything on PCR, PCR only does one thing. It's a tool. It amplifies DNA. It does not amplify RNA. It amplifies DNA. Number eight, levels of evidence. You have to know your pyramid. Look at it before you go in and memorize it. There's gonna be one or two questions on it. Number nine, the types of immunological reactions, one through four. And number 10, the dreaded calcium pathway of calcium, phosphate, hypophosphatasia, rickets, all of these things, renal osteodystrophy. Commit them to memory spend a couple minutes because you're gonna get key testable points here if you can get those questions right. So I'd like to thank everybody. Um, I hope this helped and uh, please don't hesitate to contact me through OrthoBullets and I wish you nothing but the best.
0: That's all for this basic science question review session. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets Audio Review, a daily podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you tomorrow.